Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Ian. And this is No Mean City, a podcast where we chart the history of the iconic Scottish drama Taggart, ahead of its 40th anniversary. I can't believe, because we've been talking about the idea of this podcast for so long. It is, I mean, this is pre-pandemic, the idea for this. I am so pleased that we're finally getting to do it. Pre-pandemic, I think pre-decade. I think we've talked. <laughs> Many a conversation in the pub, I think, has been had at various points over the years about, oh, someone needs to do a Taggart podcast. But this feels like the right time. It's, you know, as we said in the, the teaser for this, next year, autumn 2023, will be 40 years since Tiger started. And it's never really been off the air in that time. It's either been on repeats or it's been on drama or true entertainment and all these kind of digital channels have always used it to have on the schedule. So it's always been a presence for Tiger. It's never really gone away. What's crazy to me about the idea that that we're doing a Tiger podcast is for years there's even been a Scottish Columbo podcast. No (laughs) No one has done a podcast on Tiger yet. And I just don't understand why that is. It's, I mean, it was such a phenomenon. Oh, totally. totally. And, and, and you're right about the phenomenon. I mean, you look at the, the show's kind of legacy, and obviously we'll, we'll look at that overlay in the next however many episodes we take covering nearly 20 years of, of TV. But, you know, it pre- preceded The Bill. It preceded Morse and all the kind of the big hitter detective series. It came in in the early 80s at a point when there wasn't a huge amount of that type of crime drama. You had the kind of the Juliet Bravo stuff and... That sort of serialized things, but the Sweeney was all off air, and it was either imports from the states or it was kind of your know, Z cars, which had long since been buried. So you're right. When I look at where did Taggart come from, and we'll discover that as we go. But looking back on it now, I'm just coming to the end of a marathon watch of the Sweeney. I've done. I've watched all four. Se- almost watched all four seasons. I've watched the films. I've watched the pilot, and the Sweeney was as gritty crime drama as we got leading up to when it finished in 1978. Massive hits. But then ITV and STV went for five years without a crime drama to, to cover it. And when I looked at, when watching Killer, the first episode of Taggart, this, you can see so much that the, the, they had to take that would match what was in the Sweeney and try and take it forward. There's, I think there's a lot of overlap between the two. Definitely. It's an, an odd position because it sits in this kind of a stride, this kind of gap of this is what crime drama is like in the 70s. And it's that thing of, you know, although it was filmed in very early 83, late 82, I think it's it's still that era in Glasgow is still basically the fag end of the 70s in terms of like the fashion and the identity of the city and everything at that point. And you've not quite hit the kind of full 80s effect yet. So it is this weird bridge between what we would get on TV, TV where you can't move for crime dramas, you know, and there's whole channels now that are devoted to repeats of classic ones. And that sort of 70s thing where you had that sort of explosion through the likes of carnival films and so on, we had lots of kind of big hitter crime dramas and, you know, obviously you'd show you softly, softly and, and everything on the, the on, on the BBC, you had that kind of explosion. And, you know, you had the kind of stuff that's coming out from the States, like Columbo and so on, as you mentioned, but there was a gap. It was this weird gap. And that's where Robert Love, who was, who was the producer and, and was head of drama at STV at the time, went, there's a hole in the schedule here. You know, we haven't had anything like that since, I think, Vandervalk was the last kind of long-running thing they had on ITV that filled that gap. And we could fill it. We've got an idea. We could fill it. And that's, that's how it all came about. And if we hadn't had that, I don't think you'd get Morse. Any of the kind of big ones that come along in the, the 80s, you know, that, that, you know, all these kind of essential and notably all regional crime dramas as well. You know, Bergerac is Jersey, Morse is, is Oxford. It's all because Tiger had that real sense of place 
an identity. It was Glasgow. It was it was very imbued with Glasgow, and it showed you could do a thing that wasn't just you know London, as all these things tended to be. You could take it into the regions and be a bit more you know devolved to, to use a kind of buzzword now, I suppose. This is the thing of watching these episodes back is you realise just quite how much things have changed in Glasgow. You know, in our lifetimes, it's, it's a radical redevelopment of the city. I mean, I, it's, I live in Manchester now. And Manchester's undergone the same in the last kind of 25 years after the, the IRA bombing. But Glasgow, it's kind of like, you're watching the Tiger go along, it's like 83, 84, 85, 86, looks the same. Garden Festival, the city of culture, boom. It's a completely different city. Just something happens and it's, it's just everything changes in Glasgow in one go. And there's one thing we found, what I noticed even when we watched the episodes, between episodes, things like the bus libraries change because it's the, the, the council change and the, the rules around buses change. Like literally, it goes from the old sort of green and grey, old faded ones to the bright orange Strathclyde transport buses. Like you're literally watching the city evolve episode by episode in front of you. Let's talk a bit about what does Taggart mean to you then? Let's start with, do you remember where you might have first ever seen it? What was it to you when you were younger? You probably caught some of the first run. I was living in England when I first saw it. I'd moved down to England in 86 uh, when I was eight. And I think my first, I was about 10, I think, the first time I remember seeing it properly. I was aware of it because, not because of Taggart as much, but I was aware of it because of the Scotch and Rye sketch. Mm. So we've been back home for Hogman A, and obviously there's the famous sketch with Mark McManus. And not just Mark McManus, but actually in character as Tiger. Right, your name, Tiger. Tiger. First name, Chief Inspector. Chief. <laughs> Inspector? You mean like on the buses? And it was that rare thing of someone from the other side being on the BBC. And, you know, it was such a weird thing to have. And he's brilliant in it as well. He, he is, I'm sure we'll get to it when we get to that point in the timeline. But he is brilliant in that sketch as well. But that was kind of my awareness of what Tiger was. But I think the, the first episode I remember was probably the Garden Festival one, which would have been Root of Evil, I think it is, in late, in late 88. And that yeah. was, again, I was living in England, and it was a kind of touchstone to to home, you know, living in the middle of the Cotswolds, but as far away from, from many hills you can get. So to have Glasgow regularly up on screen and, and bits that I recognise and bits that I'd seen. I'd been to the Garden Festival that summer when I went up for my aunt's wedding. It was all stuff that was like, that's that's stuff that I, I can identify with. I was 10. I was way too young to be watching Tiger, to be honest. It was a pretty grim and grisly series if you're a 10-year-old, but it really kind of just connected for me as a, a touchstone home. So what about you? What was your connection to it? I have so many connections to Tiger. The more I think about it, I mean, you think you were too young to be watching at 10. I remember a lot of the first run, either my parents would have videoed it and I would have watched them the next morning without them knowing. So when I grew up, I grew up in the south side of Glasgow in Govan Hill, where Mark McManus lived. So I would see him walking along the street and I go, oh, Tagger. Wow. I, I have a vivid memory of him crossing the road on Victoria Road on his way home, I presume, and just staring at him. I would have been five or six years old. So, I mean, Tagger was so, so famous that even young kids knew who he was, but because he lived around the corner from my primary school, every year he would open the fete for our primary school. 
children as young as four or five knew who Taggart was. You knew what this role was. It was so important to the city. But then you would hear about how how famous it was around the UK. And then as years would come, we would find out it was successful in America. I mean, living here during all that, it was just, it was Scotland's programme. Everyone took it to heart. And it was it was part of the culture. I've heard it described as the Iron Brew of crime series. Even now, it's bizarre to think that we've had over 10 years without it. In my job, I write about media and I would go to STV's press meetings and every single press meeting was hijacked by when are you going to make an R series of Tiger? You could tell the head of production at STV, they were so fed up being asked about it. <laughs> It definitely comes to something, you, you kind of mentioned it there, and I think it's, it's very true. One thing when we've watched all these is, is the, the guest cast, the number of sort of famous Scottish actors are coming out. Tiger is the absolute epitome of that thing of being Scottish famous. Mm. You know, when you have someone who, and you know, when we get to Killer, which we'll also talk about in a minute, is the, is the someone who is the absolute kind of acme of that in Jared Kelly. Mm. Someone who was, if you lived in Glasgow, if you lived in Scotland, he was a big star. You know, he had a few years in City Lights. He was, you know, really well known. Down south, you know, later on he got known for doing like soaps and doing that Ricky Gervais thing, but he didn't really have that penetration. In Scotland, he was a star. And Tiger was that kind of thing. It was, it, it really did. It was Glasgow on screen. It was, it was, you know, how other people saw us as a city, saw us as a people, for better or worse sometimes, <laughs> I suspect. But it was a place where you watched it and went, oh, it's him from Take the High Road, or it's for us, Johnny Beatty's daughter. You know, it's all these people you knew from Scottish things were there and you didn't get that on network tv or if you did they were they were playing english parts or there were small parts where they were like the token jock this was this was scotland being presented as scotland it was glasgow being presented as glasgow it's wonderful i wonder what it meant as a scottish actor because when i watch old episodes of minders especially in the first few series it tends to be there's a joke about somebody from glasgow or they have a glaswegian and that glaswegian is either an alcoholic a con a crooked cop or a thug. Or all four. I, I, probably all four, yes. The perception of Glasgow in the late 70s and 80s, I guess Taggart kind of plays up to, up to that an awful lot. The fact that there can be three or four murders in one single story, and you don't question that. When you watch Midsummer Murders, you think, bloody hell, how many people died in this place? But in Glasgow, for the, for the decades this show ran, at no point do you think, they must have run out of people to kill. <laughs> And that's the thing, because it was a, a huge part of... I mean, you talk about like Martin Maris opening face. Like, Strathclyde Police had a, it was a huge recruiting tool, mm. the popularity of Tiger. You know, Glasgow City Council was a thing they marketed Glasgow around the world because it was so popular in, I think it was like Spain and Portugal and Russia, Germany in the 80s. There was co-productions with German TV because they loved it. It became huge in Denmark. Saw Midsummer Murders and their kind of posts... Uh, sort of millennium Nordic discovery. Tiger was huge in Denmark and Scandinavia long before they came along. They had this kind of um, global advert for Scotland in there and for Glasgow. And, and like I said, as you see Glasgow evolve, it becomes the city of culture and it becomes this kind of vibrant sort of town and, and very different to the no mean city upon the side kind of bit we see at the start, the kind of the post-industrial wasteland that Glasgow, like a lot of provincial cities, had become in the 80s. It was a flag bearer. It was a, a way of saying, you know, putting a, a flag. And I, I suspect that is why Scottish actors did it. It was a thing to have in your CV where you're not playing the stereotype or it's not like a bit part. It's a planting the flag saying, look, I've got a good part here and it's a good part at home. 
but there was no way without Taggart, you would I I would argue you would not have Nordic drama as it became. You would not have Scandi crime, the murder series that they've had over the years where what was it the tunnel? It's so Taggart. Mm. You find a dead body in the middle of the channel tunnel. That I mean is is the ideas that these shows I I think could easily have fit into Taggart somehow. I can imagine they probably missed out having the Clockwork Orange Underground uh, in Glasgow with a dead body. I don't remember that being an episode. Bring back Taggart. You can have that idea for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just so... Looking at crime drama around the world, it is influential upon it. There's no doubt mm-hmm. about that. So one of the things that comes up, there's so many familiar faces that appear in it, it, it that clearly it meant a thing for people. At the start, obviously, it's, it's an acting job. And if you're a Scottish actor and there's a big pro- high-profile series, it's an acting job to get. But you look at the number of people who are coming into it. I mean, just go where I've got to in my research moment. Jason Isaacs is in it. And Jason Isaacs was pretty well-known for the point he's in it, in a big role. It was attracting decent name actors oh, at all know. points. Even right up to the very end, those big names are still doing episodes of Tiger, right up to the final season. Quite early on, there's an episode with Alan Cumming, who is so young in it, it's terrifying, but it was such a great launchpad for Scottish talent. And the one story I ever managed to get Digital Spy to cover was when David Tennant used to openly talk about how many auditions he'd been for in Taggart and he never got a job in Taggart and he wanted a job in Taggart. So I reached out to his agent. But the question I had was, would he do it now before it ended? And they said, absolutely. David Tennant would still yeah. love to do Taggart. And the producers of Taggart went, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have David Tennant. Um, <laughs> Let's move on to talk about Killer. I'm curious, when when did you first see Killer? Do you remember that? I saw it on the... It got a repeat run, mm. um, which I think was for the 25th anniversary. It was shown on STV anyway. I remember watching it then. I thought that um, was for when Gerard Kelly died. They ran it in tribute to him. That was my memory. Was that what it was? I, I know it was definitely kind of in the, the late 10s. There was a, definitely a, a, a screening of it. I remember watching it at the time and I hadn't seen it before. And this is obviously long before like STD player or anything was about. And I was like, oh, this is this is really good. And sit down. And the first thing that hits you is the music is so different. And the titles aren't there. And everything that you expect from Tiger, because it's not a Tiger story, it's still a pilot. All the stuff you expect is not there. It's this long, slow shot over the hills and snow-covered sort of blasted heats before you even get to Glasgow and the Kingston Bridge. confusing but then they've got the violin solo and the first note mm. I, I made was what is a Sherlock Holmes I was just confused by it I can't even track down what the piece was I think it's like Shazam and stuff see if I can find that I can't work out what it is it looks like it was a piece by Mike Moran who did the music for Tiger and would go and do the, the iconic Tiger theme the incidental music is in the same vein they keep using the theme this is a work this sort of classical pieces the incidental music for the episode and again totally so jarring to what we're used to it doesn't fit the kind of the gritty streets of, of mary hill to have this kind of weird sort of slightly discordant classical piece playing underneath it sometimes but it does set the tone you know you're not in for a laugh yes well that is very true yes <laughs> unlike what you would get a few years later it's a mix of studio stuff and the studio stuff's all on videotape 
Mm. And location stuff's all on film, and you do get that very jarring 70s, early 80s thing of everything goes from looking really sort of filmic and lit nice to it's clearly a small studio somewhere in a shipyard in the south side of Glasgow <laughs> where they filmed it. It looks like a small studio it does not look like the offices that they use later on. It's very, very jarring. Oh, the, the shop scene, I just thought, take the high road. It just looked like it should have been in Tate. It did, although that said, that's the set, there's a, there's a, the corner shop they go to, it looked so much like the corner shop around the corner from my grand and granddad's. That's the <laughs> one set that I really kind of liked. So it was like going, that, it does look like every kind of rundown wee corner shop you would get in like Knightswood and Drumchapel in the 80s when I was going to visit them. It was that, had even look at the colour of the walls and the, the people's friend on the counter and that wee rack of awful books that nobody ever bought on the wee rotunda thing. All it was just like, that was just every bit of that. I was like, God, this is, this is literally just the wee shop across the road. And they, so stuff like that, that, and that's really good, but it is very jarring when you go from like the location stuff that, especially now in 2020, because the, the VT stuff is very, very low res, as you said, it does look a bit, it's kind of a bit janky these days. But at no point watching it, though, did I question the environment. So uh, no. all of it just looked great. Uh, still, even today, I, I didn't sit and think, okay, yeah, I knew it was a studio, but it didn't take me out of it at all. It's such a really well-made show, mm. I think. And it's, the other thing with it is, is it's so tightly plotted. Let's dig into the episode properly then. So that for folk who haven't watched it yet or are coming to it with a, a sort of fresh eyes, kind of very quick synopsis of it, a series of young blonde women are found strangled and left near water. Mary Hill CID launched an investigation to find the person responsible for the murders. DCI Jim Tagger is asked to head up the investigation alongside newly graduated Sergeant Peter Livingston. Despite their differences, they must uncover the killer's identity before he strikes again. Classic. Absolute classic setup. It absolutely is. And it is a good, properly well-constructed mystery as well. It unfolds, it layers one layer. The first episode is very much kind of down into the kind of the, the, the lower class bit of Glasgow around Mary Hill. Victims found lying um, next to the, the, the Clyde. And it kind of, the family are all kind of lower working class corner shop. We talked about one of the suspects works is, is in that kind of very rundown bit of the city. And then the second episode, it comes up, opens up a bit and you're into more of the West End and it's a bit posher and, you know, more middle class bits. And you've got this wonderful contrast between the two kind of aspects of, of that bit of Glasgow, that bit of Northwest Glasgow, where you have the kind of real kind of grim and gritty, no mean city side, and you've got the posh side. And the kind of the, the fusion between the two was where the story overlaps to give you that kind of nice cultural clash that's going on. And that mirrors what's happening with Jim and Peter as well, where you've got Jim, who is a very much working class, worked his way up through the ranks cop, and Peter, who is a fast-track graduate of Edinburgh Public School boy who's come out through Tully Allen and been rapidly promoting to DS and getting the, the big show, as Jim calls him in the episode, a flyer. He's, he's, you've got that nice kind of culture clash mirrored there between this actual setting of the story as well. And he, I mean, he really... He bears the brunt of Taggart's ire quite, quite. I mean, straight away, in fact. They meet with him standing over the body. He shows off a bit that he's figured out the time of death because the watch is broken, which is, that's an old one. But you can tell Taggart's not impressed by him straight away. Strangulation for the ligature. We don't have ligatures in Mary Hill. Again, it's just that sort of jarring bang. This is two very different opposing, almost kind of two bulls clashing. 
two big alpha males who are coming head to head and it does it, it's not an easy relationship between them it's really again you get used to the kind of the Jim and, and Mike Jordan era later on it's very jarring how much Jim and Peter do not get on and that that continues on when it goes to series later yeah. on there's, uh, there's real friction between the two and uh, what what I admire a lot about this just being I mean I wonder if they planned to make a series out of this in advance or was this just a one off at the time but when you look at the character of Jim Taggart especially he's I mean he's tough but they don't really soften him as 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 it goes on over the next decade he doesn't soften a great deal no I it's it's funny one of the things that kind of that really struck me watching the episode is it, I, I don't know this is kind of funny ground because I know Glenn Chandler has very much, and Robert Love always said there was no connection between the two, there was no influence between the two. But Jim and Killer feels a slightly different version of the character to Jim in the series. He's a bit more, I don't want to say Laidlaw because that's the obvious connection, but it does feel a bit more like Michael Vanny's Laidlaw. He's a bit more mercurial, he's a bit more philosophical, he's quite manipulative. Mm. And Jim, once you get into the series, is a hell of a lot more of a blunt instrument. Everything else is fully formed. Peter Livingston is straight off the bat is the same guy. You know, Neil Duncan's performance there, Alistair Duncan, sorry, his performance there is the same as it will be when he leaves. You know, Robbie Robertson's performance as Dr. Andrews is exactly the same at that point as he is when he finally leaves the show in, in you know, in 13 years' time. Martin Manis, and he's, it feels like, I don't know whether it's, it's Glenn Chandler finding his way around the role in the writing or if it's Martin Manis finding it in the, in the performance, but it doesn't quite feel like Jim yet. Mm. There's a core of him is there, but there's stuff he's a lot, you know, he's sitting back with the bit where he's talking to the, the wife of one of the suspects in our house. He's very philosophical. I live with murder, Mrs. Parson. It's ugly. It's cold. Sometimes it makes you feel cold on a midsummer's day. Sometimes it makes you feel nothing at all. Call me Pat. I'm constantly surprised how few crimes of real passion have committed. Disappoints you, perhaps? Ah. How do the French call it? Crime passionelle. Right, that's it. Well, there is a significant change in the characters when it comes to his relationship with Jean, his disabled mm. wife, who, I mean, he does seem quite bitter in, in this, whereas in the series, he doesn't seem particularly bitter about uh, the relationship. In fact, the relationship is warmer between the two of them. Yeah. I mean, it comes up here and there in terms of issues in their marriage, but that then seems to move more on to their daughter, who we do meet in this. But that is a very different relationship, I feel, than what we see here. Yes, definitely. And, and that's ironic, because in real life, Harriet Buckingham and Martin Manis didn't get on. They really didn't go on. And the interviews and stuff after his death, he said it was quite a, a fractured relationship and there was a real friction which gives the scenes with them kind of sparking off each other a bit more kind of weight as well. And he, it was kind of just, I think, a lot of just personality differences between the two. That's, it works. I mean, they work. It's a really interesting couple on screen. And they, they, they make the obviously very clear definition right from the start that, you know, Jean's, you know, she's in a wheelchair, but that's it. It's not a thing. But as you said, in that first bit, Jim is kind of, he's really cautious about how, when Peter, you know, Peter talks about her being in a wheelchair and Jim kind of bristles at it. And there's, there's a definite kind of change in the way it's handled. And he admits to having affairs later on as well. And I, 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 was, I didn't know if that was him playing, like just trying to be about getting the confidence because the, the suspect he's talking to was talking about her relationships if he was doing the same or if that was genuine I couldn't tell on that at all 
Well, in a, a upcoming episodes, he does have an affair. So I, I think it is genuine. Ooh. Which, um, again, it does not feel like Jim later on down the line. It, it, it jars at the time as well. Um, when we get to that, we'll definitely talk about it. And when I look at the relationship there, that is, I don't, I don't, I can't imagine that being replicated on screen again. I don't remember a husband and wife that have that issue coming up again it was quite bold at the time to do that to mm. have a, a, a kind of disabled character um and but to not make it the disability the thing and to make it you know she's just a character having to be a wheelchair and in fact you know the, the, there's a big long running thing through um gene's time on the show where literally you know it's the opposite of, of stopping her from doing anything she publishes a book she goes to canada she runs for parliament does lots and lots of things that just happened to be from a wheelchair rather as opposed to being defined as part of our character. It's a really bold thing to do, especially in the 80s when, you know, we weren't quite as savvy about the way these things were being written. Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. It's actually brilliant to see it. But to come back to the relationship um, between uh, the two policemen, I mean, that runs throughout it. The two of them clash throughout it. And there's scenes that are very much there to to show that they're from very different backgrounds. They've, they've both had to come up different ways and Taggart is very resentful of, of how Livingston had got to that to his place. And there's one conversation that I know for a fact you'll definitely want to talk about where they're talking about uh, one of the early suspects. Turns out he's been having a secret affair with one of his students and he's gay and there's a there's an, an interrogation scene followed by the two of them having a discussion about it afterward i just think you're unnecessarily bigoted <laughs> a bigot me listen i've turned blind eyes but when somebody wastes my time to protect a wee bit of illicit nookie i still think you're unfair oh you do do you i had gay friends at university You're not a Mary Poppins yourself. No. Oh, oh, now we're touchy, aren't we? Is that a sign of the times, do you think? Or what, what, how did you respond to it? I thought that was a fascinating scene. There's definitely, Peter comes out and starts going, you know, I had lots of gay friends at university. Mm. And Jim says, so are you one of them? And straight away, Peter's like, no. Mm. It's playing on on the stereotypes. I remember there was a piece in The Independent a, a few years later when they were doing a retrospective on Tiger that talked about the homophobia in that episode. I thought, there's, there's a, I think there's like a sort of odd, odd line between it being homophobic and Jim is very much an old school policeman. And as he points out, you know, when he questioned the suspect, the age of consent is 21 at this point. He's He's been by the book. And he, I think he's very aggressive about it. And I do think there is a kind of, you know, dodgy approach to it. But I don't think it's quite as on the nose homophobia as, as maybe it's been perceived now with the benefit of sort of 30, 40 years hindsight as to when it was written. It hasn't aged well. Well, I mean, I think watching that scene, I mean, it's clearly there to show the difference in attitudes between the two. Mm. And I did watch it to question, does that mean that Taggart is he's very by the book? I don't know if I believe he is. Is he? What is it telling us here? The fact that he's highlighting well age of consent at 21 and then Livingston saying, well, you know, well, we can brush that off because by the age of 21, you're an adult. It's, it's telling an awful lot comes from about the two characters there. And then the following conversation, which is very much the two of them dissecting what they meant during the investigation. It's fascinating mm. to see that that was included. Is it a sign of the times? I think that is a conversation that could be had today. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, certainly you would see that if you're doing a police drama now. I think you definitely that especially especially now at the moment i think mm. you see that conversation come up and it's it is it does show probably how much things haven't moved on mm. in some respects but again it's that thing of in 83 
it's a bold thing to do. It's got a little bit more, it's got less subtlety than we would do it now, I think, in, in, in 2022, but it's got more subtlety than you would expect from writing in 1983 around the issue. It's one of the things that makes Tiger stand out. You know, there are times it's a sledgehammer and there's times it's very, very much lots of things left unsaid or lots of things like left to interpretation. About halfway through Livingston, then he's been slagged off for his his scarf, his school scarf that he still wears, <laughs> and it gets commented on. And about halfway through, he puts it in the bin. He's defeated, and he's like, yeah. "Right, if I'm wearing this, I'm not going to fit in." And I thought, "Oh, I wish you'd kept that about going for a bit longer." That that is something that I could see running and running for episodes. The handling of Peters, I mean, they do some nice stuff with him later on because there's a few episodes down the line where Jim will not stop ragging on him for being a public school boy. But it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is a really interesting culture and a character clash. But then you've got Jim, because the way Jim is set up in, in Killer, you get some kind of weird things that don't, like for him slagging off Peter, don't like, like they meet, meets him in the pub when he drops the scarf off goes into the pub. And Jim is playing Pac-Man. That's right. As his way of unwinding. He says Sherlock Holmes had his violin. I've got back. And it's like, wait, what? That doesn't come back, does it? I don't remember. No, that completely disappears. I want to see that back. I want to see like, you know, five or six episodes in, he's sitting playing Donkey Kong or something. I mean, if it was a fruit machine, I don't know if we would have questioned it. That's probably... No, absolutely. Yeah, that would have felt kind of a typical Glasgow cop playing playing the Buckies or something. Mm -hmm. But he's playing Pac-Man. And you straight up see it's Pac-Man. And it's a nice thing as well with that because it's all locations that are... That pub, the interior of the pub is, as you said, the exterior pub is a very famous pub in Partick, uh, just down the road from from uh, the, the underground station, bottom of Byers Road. And, and so many of those locations are stuff you can find today. Most of them have been knocked down and turned into flats, sadly. But the points of where they are in Glasgow, it's like, oh, God, I know what that street is. Straight away. And it's like, oh, so that's his boozer. But then, kind of watching it, the, the slight disconnect from that is, but he's meant to be at Mary Hill. And that's, that's like the bottom end of Byron. It's the other end of the Great Western Road. How did he get there? And how is he driving back? I was watching the, the the second series of Guilt on BBC, which is a show that I mostly love. I mostly think it's absolutely brilliant. But throughout it, they're meant to be in Edinburgh, but so much of it's shot in Glasgow. And yeah. at the very end of season two, they're meant to be, I think they're meant to be in Chicago. And it's quite clearly Glasgow City Centre. <laughs> I can't get out of just Even the fact that it, it took me being told that was Chicago because, no, that's Glasgow. That's definitely Glasgow. I had that watching It's a Sin last year because so much of it was filmed in Manchester despite being in London. And the bit in New York is a hotel just around the corner from me. And I was like, that, oh, come on, Russ. That's quite obviously not. Well, at least pretend, you know. <laughs> Get some taxi cabs or something in the background. When we were talking about Glasgow being one of the main characters, the locations are so important to it. I mean, the, they are, the atmosphere, definitely. the drama, the location, I mean, the location managers on that show did an amazing job. I'm trying to think of different places you've got. I think Mayor Hill Graveyard's in there at one point. So there are the Botanic Gardens, the first kind of big suspect questioning, the chase sequence around the back of the... If you go out the gardens down we hill bit around the back of the, the bridge over the Kelvin, if you go up towards the north side and they do the run through all that. It's, again, it's all kind of familiar bits. The pub where, where Jim drinks is the bottom of Byers Road. Even the police station, which is supposed to be Mary Hill Police Station, it's actually part of iconic bits of the town. So there's loads and loads of bits of that. It's just going, oh, that's there, you know. As you say, the location spotting of it, and they are all very kind of distinctive bits. Like the Botanic Gardens is such an iconic building and and that chase through it. The world's slowest slow motion chase, admittedly, because it's, it's not a particularly big garden, 
<laughs> it takes them forever to run through it. But it's that having that kind of impressive visual backdrop where it's not just kind of slabs of grey and dark streets and stuff. You've got these kind of vibrancy there. And it does come to something which is very... I don't, how much of it was because of Martin Manus being obviously older. But Peter gets all the action stuff to do mm. until the end. He gets to do all the running about and chasing people and like all the because he's a younger real like yeah Alistair Duncan was twenty five I think at this point so he was going to obviously Martin Manis was just about to hit fifty he obviously felt oh like we'll, we'll get him to do all the action stuff he can be the fit one and he can run and do yeah, all that, the that was very much of the style in the eighties though I remember the Penny Mason series at the time they would always have a younger sidekick who would do all the action sequences because Raymond Burr wasn't doing any of those. Yeah. Can't imagine Ruben Burr chasing anyone for five feet. <laughs> so, that's definitely standard cop show 1980s. So move on to the, the actual story. I mean, it's it's a really twisty drama. It's like in the, it sets out what becomes the tri- the target trademark of red herring and red herring characters. There's loads in this. You know, you, the, the, the obvious question: Did you guess the killer before the revelation? So I had watching it recently. I sat vaguely remembering watching it five or six years ago and I was still questioning myself. So I remember I would I've probably seen it three or four times. The first time I definitely would not have got it. Definitely wouldn't. The rewatch, I think I went into it thinking I knew who it was, which threw me off completely. So the third time I watched it, I was still <laughs> confused as to whether or not I did get it or not. So really the answer is no, but maybe. I I can't really remember. But it's so well structured that it's it's enjoyable even even if you do know who it is. I think it's it's so well plotted. Yeah, I I agree. I I'm the same. I I watched this a couple of years back and I couldn't remember. Mm. So as I was watching it again, and I was sort of like, I can't remember who it is. It's, it's him. It's him. And I got it wrong. And it's, it's only been three years since I watched this before. How did I forget? But yeah, it is really, really well t- plotted. And the revelation when Jim kind of explains what's happened to Peter as they're driving off to the, sort of the big final confrontation. Some of the things I never told you about this case. Why? And it was so important. I never knew it was important until now. So he committed two other murders to make it look like the work of a maniac. He sent the anonymous letter with the hairs in it. Sent you off in a wild goose chase. He fooled us all. Why go to all that trouble? Oh, think. There's no way in hell you would have got it though until that point because it is it is so many kind of layer upon layer of red herring that you think. Okay, right, I get, it, but no. Okay. <laughs> but then, and I'm hoping this isn't a giveaway. But when I think back on the actual solution to it all, was there a lot of episode one that was involved in that? I do kind of think it's there. I mean, it does all make sense. But it's, I don't know if it's throughout the entire, the entire run of the story. Yeah, I think that is, that's probably the fairest criticism you can make. Is the, the stuff in the first episode is largely set up. It's to set up the murders and the bodies being discovered and a couple of characters who could be suspects. And the kind of the bulk of it comes in episode two in terms of who it could be. But it's because of the way it's constructed, it's entirely plausible until you get to the, the kind of the, yeah. the end of episode three. You're going, but, but was it? Could it have been that maybe it was him? And then something happens and it's like, oh, okay, so it can have been him. Mm. And then stuff, it lands. It's, it's really tightly done. It works. I, I, I don't mind that. As well. And I think because watching it in one go rather than three episodes, I suspect if you watch this in three separate episodes at the time, it might be a bit frustrating getting to the third one going, wait a minute, that one two weeks ago, there's like, yeah. that didn't make sense. 
but in one go as one narrative it absolutely fits and it works really well see i didn't i haven't watched it in one go i tried to do it and how it initially ran so i watched it in three parts and <clears> i think that worked i went i think i don't know if i could watch all in one go it is two and a half hours to do it properly, so it does take up a lot of time. It's an interesting experience because it is not how it was designed to be watched. It was designed to be watched with effectively cliffhangers. Yeah. You don't have that in one stream, but it does allow the narrative to kind of flow a bit better in, in retrospect. So, And it's interesting as we go along with that. Obviously, traditionally it was episodic, but there's a lot of one-offs and like 90-minute specials and mini-movies and stuff where it is constructed into two hours, and that feels like a natural length for it as we go along it feels like a better structure something well I, I mean i never watched it in the end when it was one hour standalone yeah. episodes i can't imagine dagger working like that at all so one of the suspects is uh ex-convict not long out of jail for rape uh, raping a young woman how did you react to how that was handled again i think this is the thing i think this will be a phrase on this podcast a lot but it's of its time Mm. I again I'm not sure that's how it would be written in 2022 but it is very much of its its time in terms of the setup for the character and some of the stuff that comes out later like he's it's really interesting he's played quite and, and written sympathetically mm. and then there's a kind of a character revolution slightly later on and all that that is kind of completely fractured by, by what's said about things he's done since yeah. getting out of jail. And it's like, we've basically had three episodes of being led to think, okay, he's either the, the villain here or actually he's he's a really unfortunate guy who's, you know, he's just been given a shooing by the fathers of uh, one of the victims and stuff. And he's, he's you know, there's going to be a, a real kind of sympathetic thing at the end of he's, he's, he's gone straight or something. And no, he's still dodgy as anything, but things go in a different direction. It's really kind of interesting way they take the character stuff like that i mean you look at they've tackled some real taboo issues in this mm. series and i i have to take my hat off to them i mean they've clearly not they've not been too concerned about controversy because it feels this could this would probably be what happens during during the reaction to these crimes and that i i think I think they've done a great job of actually just addressing where, how how it's been handled is a different matter, but I think the fact that they've just tackled it at all is curious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not just there as a sort of cheap character point to to, no. to to make him a suspect. It is built into motivations around him, his relationship with other people, his relationship with the community. It becomes a, a kind of a, an exploration of what what happens and how how the police relate to him, which again, you know, is, is of its time, but. And the thing that's really interesting with that is that he's obviously known to Jim and Jim knows him. And Jim seems to know everybody in the community. Anyone who's remotely dodgy seems to have gone through his hands because everybody recognises him, everybody knows his name, everybody knows his face. That feels really Regan-esque to me. Uh, it does, yeah. It's, it, I suppose it kind of makes sense. Like he's like a, the, the central cop for the... Yeah. Like, and again, that kind of almost... Again, I'd love to do the Laidlaw comparison, but it does kind of have that thing of everybody in, in the Laidlaw goes, everybody knows Laidlaw, you know, for better or worse. And like in this, everybody knows Jim for better or worse. So that could be the follow up sitcom, Everybody Knows Laidlaw. <laughs> that sounds fine. That works quite well, actually. Thinking my memory of this, and it definitely plays tricks on me, I thought Jenner Kelly was the star of this. And my memory was he was he was such a big focus of this. And actually, He's not in it as much as I remembered. He's not. And he's he, the stuff he's in it with is 
it's quite tangential. A lot mm. of it you're kind of watching and going, again, it's kind of red herring stuff. Is he being set up as the, the killer? Is he being set up as you know just 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 a red herring? Yeah, and it's it's there's a lot of kind of tangential stuff where he's not directly involved in stuff with any of the main characters. You know, he speaks to Jim and Peter a couple of times, and that is it. His stuff is with his his partner, and that's the only kind of involvement he has with the plot for most of it. It is a kind of weird disconnect, um, but it works. Because he does, you, whenever he's on, you get this kind of constant sense of unease mm. whenever I see him on screen. Which I think is testament to his performance as well, because he plays it. And I mean, at that point, Jared Kelly was really well known as a great sort of comic actor. Mm. And he would go on, obviously, the next couple of years to do City Lights and stuff. But he'd been doing Scotch and Rye, he'd been doing a lot of kind of comedy series. He was really well known for that, although, you know, a good dramatic actor uh, as well. But it's, it's like that is such a kind of odd, there's something about the way he plays Michael in the, the episode, you're kind of going, Mm. It, just, it just feels dirty every time you see him. See, I have a memory. When I was really young, there was a Christmas show on BBC called, I think it was The Spirit of Christmas. It was an annual show, and BBC Scotland would make it. And one year, Gerard Kelly was the host or something like that. And uh, and I'll talk about this again in the future, but I was in, I was in a choir when I was young, and uh, the Glasgow Youth Choir, we were singing on it. And during one of the breaks, we were all told we could go get Gerard Kelly's autograph. So all the kids queued up. And I mean, there were loads of us, but I was at the end of it. And about three kids before I got to him, he just said, no more, I'm done, and walked away. And I was oh. and never let that go. I have never <laughs> let that go. How dare you, Gerard Kelly? <laughs> so, uh, oh, my so God. It, it was that. a hard that's... watch for me, this one. <laughs> oh, Steve, that's heartbreaking. Mm. Oh. A lot of the action takes place in a video shop, and I, I thought the video shop was looked okay, but there really weren't many videos in that video shop. I kept thinking, how is that a business? And to be fair, it's 1983. There wasn't a huge amount of videos out at that point. But the owner, he's a he's apparently this businessman who has who has an empire. Well, not he says at one point he doesn't go out of an empire. But how does that video shop transfer into he can afford the house he lives in? There's no way. <laughs> in 1983, there's not a huge amount of videos and not a huge amount of people with videos to rent stuff. So I can't imagine, especially in that bit of town, I can't imagine they're turning over a huge amount. And also, he does get done for selling dodgy pirates as well. Yeah. So what's quite funny is watching that, having no, quite recently rewatched or watched um, Prano Bailey Bond's Censor, um, which is a horror film that came out last year, about a BBFC censor watching video nasties and she goes into a video shop to get one of the video nasties and it looks like the set from the tiger episode and i just kept thinking of when i was watching killer like is he is he gonna go and try and get this film that she had <laughs> and then like and then go on a horrible murder spree and that must be kind of weird coming to that as a as someone now the idea of a video shop mm. like blockbuster shot down how many years ago back then you didn't you know, you renting a video costs you like 30 quid to get a VHS, and they were all, you know, out of date. You didn't get new films on video for a long time. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what he was trading. Uh, and the idea that you had to go somewhere, pick it up, bring it home, rewind it once you were yes. done or get a time, <laughs> which nobody ever did, and then take it back again. 
the amount, I mean, the investment you had to do, you had to put in just to watch a movie, and then it might turn out, it probably would turn out to be rubbish. <laughs> so much time invested. If anything is dated, this episode of Tiger, it's not the fashions, it's not the location, it's not the sort of the, the changing scale in the Glasgow, not the ingrained attitude or anything else. It's the renting of VHS for the night. So the owner of the video shop is one of the key characters, but also his wife is a key character as well. Mm. Now, his wife ends up having more dialogue with Taggart than, and there's a bit of a relationship that builds between them. What did you make of what they were doing with that? Again, it was that kind of how Jim reacts to a different class. And you see that with, with obviously, he, he's very antagonistic towards the video shop owner, her, her husband who it turns out is good friends with his boss, who he's pals with the Mint, Robert Murray, the... the How confusing is that? So who's the Mint? Wait a minute. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's... Well, we'll get to that one when, when uh, McVitie comes in, but yeah, there's a kind of weird thing where he's got a boss for two episodes and disappears. He keeps trying to get him to call Tiger off his, his surveillance and investigation. And Tiger, it's a kind of weird... Like we said earlier about that conversation that they have about his her affairs and him saying he's seen other women and stuff. They have a very odd, flirtatious relationship, but I'm never convinced that it's not just him being really manipulative mm-hmm. to get at the husband. There's like he takes her out for lunch and stuff, and and the, the all the conversations they have are all kind of leading to a point of his investigation. It never feels. That's why I'm not convinced that the conversation about him saying he's seen other women is 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 him being. Serious, and he's not just playing to try and tap into her own relationship with her husband to you know, exploit those cracks and get what he's looking for. He certainly wins her trust. And yeah, that's probably what what does it. Thinking and then sends that, Peter in to do a bit of B and E bizarrely as well, which is really <laughs> weird. It's like, yeah, I'm going to take her out for lunch. You're my junior. Can you go break into their house, please? I'm sure that was happening in Glasgow all the time. That was standard police methods. I'll I'll take the wife for lunch. You break in into the house. <laughs> that, that's another cop show trope. Seeing him look at those love letters he keeps locked in that drawer. What letters? From her in London before she came to work for him. I have feelings. I just learnt to control them, that's all. I'm sorry I've upset you. No. Just got at the truth. So recommendations-wise, would you recommend the episodes to people to watch? I would. I would watch it the way I watch it. I would say to anyone, try and watch it in three parts. Take your time with that. Just think about it as it goes along. Is the killer guessable? I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. And thinking back in retrospect, I don't think I could have guessed it. I mean, you watched it one. Would you say that's the way that people should watch it if you would recommend it? I, I did it out of necessity just to, to, because it was all one stream and I, the idea of trying to go through STV players' constant adverts was kind of like, I don't want to do this for three days running. I'll watch it in one go and get them out of the way. Um, I see that Susan Calm and Bank of Scotland advert again. I'll put something through my screen. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's, it works really well as a kind of big mystery drama, you know, a feature-length thing if you watch it like that or if you, if you want to break up, you can in episodes. Um I think it works really well as a, as a piece of television. I think it's it's a great introduction to the series, even though Jim is slightly different than what we expect. It's definitely still what we know as Tiger is there. Everything is kind of on screen that we expect it to be. Um, it works, I think, 
in terms of getting your attention and keeping you gripped for for two and a half hours as, as a kind of as a as a mystery, trying to unpick the mystery. So, yeah, solid recommendation. It's a very strong pilot as the show starts. And one of the things that's wonderful about what's to come, first of all, I'm excited to get to the theme. The theme tune coming into <laughs> it is just whole. It takes the show to a whole other level. It's got to be one of the great TV theme tunes. But then the writing, I think Glenn Chandler is a tremendous writer. And the plotting to come for some of the mysteries is just so clever. And uh, the dialogue, he sticks with one-liners for, for Jim Taggart. And there's a lot to look forward to there. But it is incredible how much of it's there in the start. It is so yes, yeah. recognisably Taggart. It's fantastic. In terms of context, it was Written by Glenn Chandler, directed by Lawrence Moody, aired between the 6th and the 20th of September, 1983. The UK at the time, UK number one for the entire run of, of this episode was Red Red Wine by UB40. <laughs> and the number one film in the box office was Blue Thunder. So there you go. That's the context. That's the Britain that this tiger existed within. UB40 at the top of the charts and Blue Thunder blowing things up in the cinema. Another bit of trivia. The director is the second cousin of Ron Moody. Really? Yep. Oh, wow. I didn't Thinking know that. In terms of familiar faces, obviously we mentioned Jared Kelly. Um, if people don't know who Jared Kelly is, you know, we said at the start, hugely famous actor. The other one, really familiar face in this is Frank Wiley, who plays the shopkeeper in, in the story that we mentioned before. He's one of the suspects. If you're Scottish, you will recognise him. He played Fergus and Take the High Road for about a thousand years. Great character actor, was in a bunch of things. We'll be back in Taggart in a few years' time as well, as indeed most people who work in Scotland where they got multiple episodes. But he was one of those guys who was like a staple in High Road for a really long time. So it's one of the things where I started watching it going, where did I know him from? And I looked it up and like, oh, it's him. And that will become a refrain through all of this. Yeah. I did recognise Tom Watson, who plays uh, the mint Dr. Finlay, prime suspect, Hamish McBeth, Heartbeat. Yeah, uh, really. After, after Target, he'd go on to be in um, Cardiac Arrest. He was the top surgeon at the hospital, um, obviously written by Jed Mercurio, now one of the top crime writers in this country. So I have never seen Cardiac Arrest. Ah, <sighs> oh, sorry. Well, let's we'll address that when we finish this hundred and whatever episode run of Tiger. I have interviewed <laughs> Jed Mercurio. Didn't admit that. <laughs> maybe one day. So, if you've watched it after having this conversation, drop us a line. Ian, what's the Twitter handle? You can get in touch with us on Twitter at no mean city pod or by email at no mean city pod at gmail.com. Tell us your thoughts on Killer and tell us your thoughts on the podcast. God help us. So and at this point, since we're going to keep track of all the murders, we have now got six deaths on Tiger already into the pilot. Four people who are killed in the course of this episode or directly in the episode. One we're, we'll hear about ha- happening by connected to the episode further in and one suicide that is connected to the case so six is a fairly good body count to kick off the series with and we should also try and monitor at any point did anyone say it did anyone say it no one says there's been a murder but there is there's been another murder in there so that comes up so next time we will be looking at the first series proper of Tiger. Two episodes from 1985, Dead Ringer and Murder in Season. So join us then and thank you for tuning in. <laughs>